Welcome to the Dynamic Leaders Podcast, a product of Talent 409. I'm your host, Colin Cernelia. Go to talent409.com to see how we can help your team or organization with their leadership and culture development. On each episode of the pod, we'll bring you conversations with people that display the seven pillars of dynamic leadership. Someone who possesses those seven pillars has courage, driving accountability, integrity, grit, great communication skills, a high level of emotional intelligence, and they can motivate others. Have questions for me or a guest? Email Colin, C-O-L-I-N, at talent409.com. And let's chat. This podcast is available on Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Play, Radio.com, iTunes, and Apple Podcasts. If you like the show, please take a minute and on Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating and review. Help us find other dynamic leaders and help dynamic leaders find us. On to my featured guest today, who is none other than the wonderful Kara Krieger. Kara is Senior Counsel at National Grid in Syracuse, New York. She is also a very good friend of mine, and I love when I can bring close friends of mine on the show because it shows that I have some really smart friends that I surround myself with, and that's where I get a lot of my thoughts and actions from. So it's really great to have Kara. She has an incredibly diverse background, going all the way back to her athletic experiences when she was younger, although she will try to tell you that they're not that impressive. But we talk about that. We talk about her law career, everything in between. Let's not wait any longer. It's a great talk. So here is my conversation with Kara Krieger. Okay, everyone, welcome back to the Dynamic Leaders Podcast. Today, my very special guest with me is Kara Krieger. Kara, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Paul. I'm happy to be here. Yes, I'm happy to have you and I'm excited for our conversation together today. So let's dive right into everything. First, I want to give you an opportunity to tell the listening audience a bit about yourself. So please tell us, who are you? Sure. So I currently am in-house counsel at National Grid, which is a large multinational electric and gas utility. We have operations in the Northeast, so New York, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island, as well as we've got a large segment of distribution and utilities in the UK, so England and and some other areas, as well as some interconnecting pipelines. So I primarily serve in our New York regulatory group, so I handle a lot of our our regulatory legal filings, general corporate compliance, um, and other areas that may impact the business, whether it's utility-specific or otherwise. My background, so I grew up in the great state of Wisconsin. I am a huge Packer, Badger, Brewer, Buck fan. Luckily, they've all been pretty good lately, so I haven't had too much heartache. (laughs) And then, so growing up, I played athletics since I can remember. Some of the first pictures that I have are me holding that giant plastic bat with a ball and just playing ball in the back with my mom. So my primary sports were basketball, softball, and tennis growing up. I was on multiple AAU traveling teams from the time I was, you know, very young in elementary school up until my senior year of high school. I was a four-time varsity basketball and softball player, also varsity tennis, Um, have some honorable mention all-state, first-team all-conference, those kind of accolades. Um, But ultimately, 
I did receive some D2 and D3 offers to play sports, but I really, really wanted to go to the University of Wisconsin. And I decided I didn't want to walk on. I, I had talked to the coach about walking on, but I wanted to kind of more focus on my academics at that point in my life because I had been playing sports primarily for, you know, almost 18 years. So I kind of took a break. And then once I took a break, I kind of ran from it from there. Um, I graduated from the University of Wisconsin with a Bachelor of Science in Psychology, a certificate in Classics Studies, and then um, went to law school at Syracuse University. I graduated from SU in 2011, and I had a certificate in sports and entertainment law because I still loved sports and entertainment and really wanted to have some part of my life reflect where I had been growing up. So I, I've got that certificate, not using it currently, but it doesn't mean that I can't in the future. And one of the cool things that I did while I was in law school is my second year of law school. I was actually a summer intern at the Screen Actors Guild in LA. So I did get to practice sports and entertainment law for a little bit. So that's kind of where I am and how athletics have shaped where I've, where I've been, where I've gone, and where I hope to be. So I have an interesting question. Your mm -hmm. background to me is, is similar in the sense that I grew up pretty heavily and in, intensively in playing sports also just really enjoying sports. Like there's a difference. Sometimes people don't necessarily, like they don't always complement each other in that way. Sometimes somebody's really good at sports, but they don't enjoy watching them. You seem to have both. And that's how I was growing up. And I can remember when I was, especially like when I was a teenager and you start to think about what am I going to do with my life when I get a little bit older and trying to separate what I've known and what I've loved just being so centered around sports and athletics and trying to open up to other ideas. Did you ever come across that when you were younger, trying to determine what paths you were going to take once you finished up playing competitive sports? Yeah, it was hard at first. It's hard to reconcile. I've done this my entire life and it has been my entire life and I've loved every minute of it with the reality that very few actually make it to professional sports. And in the sports that I was playing, you know, there was, there's not, I don't know if there is now, maybe there is, but at that time there wasn't women's professional softball and softball was, you know, the sport where I had the most accolades, had the most recruiting, had, you know, more interest in that coming out of high school. And it, it was just, okay, what are my other skills and talents? I always did well in school, you know, was the top of my class there too. So I thought, okay, well, I've got this other skill set. Now it's, it's coming to the reality that at some point I can still continue to play sports, but the level of competition and the level of involvement may change. But realizing that that wasn't the end of the world for me. Mm -hmm. um, there were still great opportunities and things that I could thrive at outside of the competitive sports arena. So it was just learning to pivot. And I think I kind of started to do that a little bit my senior year of high school. So that was the year we won the state tournament. But before that, there were just a lot of setbacks. I had really bad sprains of my ankles several times throughout the season. You know, in certain instances, couldn't go to school for a couple of days or had to bring have my homework brought home for me just because I couldn't walk. Wow. And it was that realization that, okay, well, if I get injured in the future, this is going to be my reality. So I think having that time to sit and think about it really made me realize, okay, I love sports. I'm absolutely passionate about it, but 
do I want to go through this in college? Do I want to continue to have this uphill battle or do I want to still retain my passion, not burn out on it, and then just focus on other things that I'm good at, like school as well? Yeah, I love that. And so when you were making the pivot, as you put it, obviously, there were probably a lot of skills and attributes that you learned through athletics. Were there, were there anything specific out of that that you said, these are qualities that I can apply to whatever it is I'm going to do, whether it was in college or what you're doing now as legal counsel, did you take some of those things from your competitive experiences in athletics? Yeah, absolutely. I think first and foremost, it was the drive. Because I think if you're any sort of successful athlete or someone that wants to be a successful athlete, you have to have an intrinsic drive. If you're driven by, okay, well, someone else schedules my practices, my coach will tell me what to do, you're never going to get there. You've got to want to do it on your own. And I think that first and foremost is what you're going to need, whether you're an attorney or if you're doing podcasts or if you're a sales rep, if you're not driven with a passion to do what you're doing, then don't do it. It it applies in all facets of life. Those people who don't want to go above and beyond and have that self-motivation aren't those that are going to be successful in life. And whether that's in a leadership capacity or just doing your everyday job. So it was really that drive and finding what you want to do and, and being passionate about whatever it is outside of the sports context that I really thought helped me as well as I played some individual sports and I played some team sports. And I think the lessons that you learn on the court in both of those situations translate well into other situations as well. So when you're playing singles in tennis, you've got to have that drive and that motivation to get yourself going because there's no one else around you. Mm -hmm. Whereas in a team setting, which is very similar to what I work in now, it's all right, how can we utilize all of our best talents to get the best out of one another and to deliver the results that we want to deliver? So it was that collaboration that really helped, I think, translate as well. And then in any facet of your life, there's always some aspect of competition. So being able, and whether you're competing with someone else for a position, or if you're in court and you're competing with your opposing counsel to kind of win the motion, that competition and how you manage those stress levels and how you react during those moments of stress during competition, I also felt really helped me a lot as I got into the professional world. Awesome. So you walked us through a little bit of your thought process towards the end of high school and when you were going to transition into college and you ultimately get your bachelor's degree and then you decide on law school. Take us behind the scenes into your decision-making process. Like, Why did you decide that you wanted to pursue a law degree? So very candidly, when I got into Madison, the first two years, I was dead set on being a psychiatrist. I wanted to do sports psychiatry. I, you know, I wanted to go to med school. I wanted to do all of those kind of things because I thought, all right, well, if I'm not playing sports anymore, I like the idea of understanding the mentality behind it and being able to help others through it. My junior year, I got to organic chemistry and I absolutely hated it. <laughs> Could not have disliked a class more than that. So I kind of pivoted. Law school was always uh, in the back of my mind and I knew I excelled at the writing components and arguing and public speaking and all of those things that really you need to be a great lawyer. But And then I took organic chemistry and I thought, well, all right, so I'm going to go to my plan B. And my plan B was law school. And I picked SU because I had actually visited 
for undergrad. I had a small scholarship to attend SU in undergrad. At that time, Madison was still my number one, was close enough to home where I didn't feel like I was going halfway across the country. SU had a sports and entertainment law program. So I thought, okay, I'm still going to be doing something and I can take certain classes towards, you know, that ultimate goal of sports and entertainment because it is one of my passions and it, it just worked out from there. And then I ultimately met my husband while I was in law school at SU and we both got jobs in the Syracuse area. So Syracuse law school in general was a plan B, but it turned out to be, I think, honestly, it should have been my planning. It's a lot of my strengths are in the area of the law. So I'm glad that my plan B turned out to be my plan A. And then the pieces kind of fell in place from there. And SU ended up being a really great choice for me. So the public speaking aspect or the writing aspect, things that you talked about you needed to be Mm -hmm. strong in in order to pursue a career like this. How did you, as an individual, get to the point where you felt confident enough? Like, what were some of the things that you did that built up those skills and got you to the point where you said, hey, I can do this. I'm really good at it. Uh, Because a lot of us, especially like public speaking, particularly, I think can be intimidating for people and they don't necessarily want to do it. But in a job, like you said, like you're in, it's (laughs) you have to be able to do it. So I'm curious as to how you built up some of those skills that are necessary for your success. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's kind of twofold. One, it's practicing, practicing it when you're behind the scenes. So if you've got your document in front of you, getting familiar with it, knowing the ins and outs of your speech before you're giving it, because the worst thing that you can do in a situation is not prepare especially in public speaking, because people tend to seize up and your presentation is automatically not as natural as you'd want it to be. So if you're not familiar enough with it to beginning at the beginning to set yourself up, you're going to fail before you even get on stage. But then, so I think preparation is half of it. And then the other half is just experience. It's you're never going to be a hundred percent comfortable public speaking. I know that people that public that are speakers that just generally travel out in the public and give presentations all the time, they're not 100% comfortable every single time either. They still have those nerves. They still have some of the anxiety about giving the presentation, but they've done it enough times where they can find some of those good aspects of prior presentations to give themselves that confidence and to get on stage. So the more you do it, the better you'll feel. And that sounds, sounds pretty obvious, but it, it really does in law school. They're gonna. You take classes to to teach you how to write, to teach you how to analyze things. But then you also teach. They take classes that really you're forced to give presentations, and whether it's a legal argument, whether it's just a presentation on a memo to a class, or or something of that nature, it's putting yourself in those situations that make you uncomfortable, that are really gonna help you grow. Whether it's in sports or whether it's in your professional career, and I do think that. Being on a team and having to speak to your teammates, whether it's on the court or off the court during practice and motivate one another. I mean, you're speaking to a smaller audience in those situations, but you're still practicing your public speaking skills. So I I think that also helped me as well, just because you're getting comfort, getting comforts in those smaller group settings will ultimately translate to larger group settings as well. So if you had someone that came up to you, maybe they just finished their bachelor's degree or they're still in undergraduate and they're considering going to law school, but 
maybe they didn't grow up playing sports and they didn't get that public speaking exposure that you just talked about. And maybe their writing skills, they don't feel are up to par. Like obviously, like you said, once you get into the program, you take classes where you sharpen those skills and you build that up. But getting to that point, I'm wondering what advice you could offer to someone who's considering that. I mean, you've obviously been practicing law for a long time. So I assume that you would recommend it as a career for (laughs) people if they're interested in it. So I'm just curious if you could give any practical advice for someone who may be on the fence and may not have had the exposure that you had prior to making that decision, if there's anything that they can do to help themselves out. Yeah. First and foremost, you said a long time. I'm not that old, but (laughs) I have been practicing law for almost eight years now. So I'm still learning things myself, but what what I've seen in the past is as remedial as it may seem, don't be afraid to take a small learning course, whether it's at community college or read a book just on writing and different grammar techniques. People always think, well, if I'm not a good writer, I will never be a good writer. That's not true. You can develop these skills as you go along. And sometimes I've found just getting, like I said, whether it's a book or a class or something that takes you out of a traditional context where you're reading something that you wouldn't ordinarily be reading, seeing different writing styles, seeing how people put things. It sounds totally nerdy and it absolutely is. But everyone constructs a sentence differently. And if you're reading something and you kind of analyze, oh, well, they put this clause here or they use that comma there. And it really helps to emphasize certain aspects of the sentence. For me, it was just reading more and reading different types of of subject matter that really helped me think, oh, well, in my writing, I think I'm absolutely going to try this next time. And I think it's going to have more impact than I think I would have written it before. So Mm -hmm. if you want to get better at it, You're just not going to get better at it writing the same thing over and over. You really have to broaden your exposure to different types of reading styles, writing styles, et cetera, and then try to incorporate that into how you write because writing is a very dynamic experience. It's like I said, not everyone writes the same sentence the same way. So it's gradually evolving your style as you go along and, and marking along the way, okay, I've absolutely improved after a year in of doing this and, and another year and another year. You can always improve in this area. So I think it's it's really just seeking that exposure to other experiences that helped me. And I mean, I had somewhat of a leg up because my mom was an English teacher. So <laughs> I had that experience going in and she had always proofread my writing and kind of given me her third party advice. But if I didn't continue to strive to, to learn and to find new ways to write things, I think I wouldn't have been the writer that I am today. Sure. Yeah. You still had to put in the work. Like you couldn't just magically yeah. come up with these great sentences and these great structures for your writing and your public speaking. You still had to put it in the work yourself. Exactly. Put in the work yourself and also solicit third party advice. So I write a lot of material independently right now, but there are still things that need to go through my bosses or my boss's boss, right? To to see if I've got the right tone, to see if I've got the right message. And I will say, honestly, at first it was hard for me to take some of the feedback, 
just because when you think you're good at something and then someone comes in and they've got a lot of red lines, your first reaction <laughs> is to kind of seize up a little bit. Sure. But I think welcoming that holistic review of, of someone else really helps to improve you as a writer as well, because you could say, oh, I thought I was saying this, but actually, I guess it came off this way, or I wasn't thinking about that aspect of it, especially when you're sending out documents to the public, you want to make sure your messaging and your story is consistent and you're not saying things in a way that might be misinterpreted. So that also helped me as well, just continuing to do it and, and learning and getting those experiences and then getting the feedback from my bosses, I think was a really great thing for me as well. So sticking with the feedback a little bit is improving based on feedback that you get as simple as being open to the potential criticism that you might get or however you want to phrase it. Because I think a lot of people, they say they want feedback, but their natural in inclination is to act exactly like you said, where you tense up a little bit. You're like, ah, wait, what? And yeah. is it as simple as just being open to accepting it is the way that you can improve? Or are there other aspects to how you can improve based on feedback? I think if you're not open to it, you're never going to incorporate it. Everyone says they want feedback. But really, they only want the feedback that confirms what they've already done, right? <laughs> right, right. It, 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 that's not actually feedback. You just want praise for what you did. And ultimately, that's not how feedback is meant to work. I, I think if you're open to it and you realize that everyone has a different perspective and you take in the good feedback and you work from the constructive feedback, and I say constructive because I absolutely hope it's constructive. Mm -hmm. I've seen situations where there's been negative feedback and you can't really build from negative feedback. If it's just entirely negative, then that's not meant to build the other person up. It's more meant to just take a shot at them. Whereas constructive feedback is showing someone where they could have improved and hopefully giving them guidance on how to improve that. And I think as a leader or as just a human being, constructive feedback is the type of feedback that we should be giving to everyone. And if it's constructive and you're open to it, you're absolutely going to grow. And I think feedback, if someone's giving you feedback, it means it took time out of their day to look at something for you. So you should be appreciative of that as well, because as much as it, you may think, oh, I did a really great job on this and they're just tearing it down. Well, they took the time to, to point out areas where you could improve out of their day so that hopefully that you grow. So I think it's the most important part of receiving feedback is being open to it and then being appreciative and incorporating it into your life as you go forward. I love that. Okay. Sticking with skill sets. I know I'm making you think here and stay in this a little <laughs> while, but <laughs> so we talked about public speaking a little bit and public speaking mm -hmm. is obviously very heavy communication and being able to communicate in my mind, one of the most effective ways to do it is to be direct and to be concise. And I think personally knowing you and I mean, I, I can assume in the line of work that you're in being direct is probably one of the number one aspects that's going to make you successful. I'd love to hear a couple things on that, how you learned that communication style or like who you learned that communication style from, and also how you're able to be direct and because sometimes when, when you're direct, you're giving feedback or you're saying something that may not be what the other person wants to hear. So how you do it in a way that doesn't like alienate you from your peers. Yeah. And I will say, I, 
I've tried to be direct my whole life. Um, I know in some instances, sometimes that can be a little bit hard, but I did struggle with it a little bit when I first started with my job. In my attempt to be direct, formal, and straight to the point, a lot of the times those either that were my peers or senior kind of took that as there was some negative tone associated with that. Mm -hmm. So I had to learn quickly, how can I still be direct, but soften the messaging so that the person that is going to read it isn't automatically going to be turned off by what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. So part of it was just, you know, tweaking my writing style or tweaking my presentation style a little bit so that when I'm being direct, I'm also being approachable. So I'm not being direct in a way that I'm being curt or, you know, sharp or cutting people off. It's more, this is absolutely what I think, but I'm happy to hear what you want to think. Let's have a discussion about this and get to the right solution based on both of our perspectives rather than, well, I'm being direct to the point, this is what I think. And there's no other solution other than that. I think I had to kind of go away from that a little bit at first as well. And it's also building relationships. I think at first when you're direct, it can kind of take people aback if you don't have the right tone and the right demeanor. But the more people get to know you and they know that you're a straight shooter and they're gonna give you're gonna give them your honest opinion, then I've noticed a lot of my peers will I will be one of the first people that I reach they reach out to for feedback because I'm going to honestly tell them what I think but I'm not going to hurt them in the process of being honest. So I think it's really, it's finding that fine line between being the right level of direct and straightforward with those that you're working with, but not doing it in a way that is going to automatically hurt them and put their defenses up because you're not going to get anywhere in a conversation if one side is already defensive and doesn't want to listen. So I think being direct is a wonderful skill and, and everyone can incorporate it. Because I think ultimately the people who are direct are going to get better results because when you waffle about certain issues, it's hard to find a good way to put this, but when I work with people that waffle or don't tell me exactly what they're thinking, it automatically to me, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, all right, well, are they actually committed to this proposal? Do they want to go forward with this argument or is there something missing? Or maybe they just don't care. Mm -hmm. I'm direct because... I don't want anyone to waste time going down a route that ultimately is not going to be the correct route for them. So I'm not going to tell you why is a wonderful idea just because you love why. I'm going to tell you, well, you know, maybe X is actually a better solution for you in this situation. If you want to go with Y, that's absolutely your prerogative. That's your choice. But I'm going to be direct with you and say, this is what I think is better for you. And that's because ultimately I care about the end result. So that's kind of why I'm a little bit direct, but I will also say being direct, there is a very fine line that people can take the wrong way when you're direct if you don't have the right approach to it. Sure. And I love how you put that together for us saying that you are direct, but approachable. And that allows you to build that relationship where people see that you do care, (laughs) that you're not just putting them off really quickly so that you can move on to your next task and you don't want to talk to them. It's just, Hey, I do care. Here's the feedback, take it, or here's what I think, take it and let's move on from there. But in a way that makes them 
almost feel welcome to ask you and solicit you for that information versus have a hesitation to do it because you might yell at them or something like that. Well, yeah, and you can only be direct if someone's actually asking your opinion, right? Mm -hmm. You can't be direct if you're only by yourself. So if you're direct in a way that hurts people, people are going to stop coming to you. So if you want to stay engaged in the conversation and have a seat at the table, and this applies in all facets of life, being approachable and being open are two of the best assets you can have overall because it's it's going to ensure that people are going to keep coming to you and it's also going to be ensure that when you are giving that message it's it's going to be received rather than dismissed 30 second break to talk about my sponsor sweat with scott what a great sponsor she is she's been with pod since day one and we love having her support sweat with stods offers a number of different options to get you on a path to improve your fitness future everything from fitness nutrition and simple healthy habits so what are you waiting for head over to sweatwithstods.com right now and when you buy a program enter the code dynamic at checkout to receive a discount for being a loyal podcast listener now back to the show so before we completely switch gears here in the conversation, before we leave some of the legal talk and those type of things, if mm-hmm. there is somebody listening to the podcast that is potentially interested in a career in law or some type of avenue down the legal industry, what are some things that you can say to them as far as here's what you should be considering doing, here's what you can expect from a career. Can you just give us a quick scope as to what it's like to actually be a part of the industry? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of colleges, and I think even some high schools now, might have pre-law programs. So to go to law school is very similar to going to med school. You don't have to have a specific degree. You can have one of several degrees. For example, I've got a psychology degree. My husband has a philosophy degree, which I don't know how often he uses, but he's still got it, Um, (laughs) which is funny if you know my husband, that philosophy is not something you would think that that suits Aaron, but the pre-law programs will really tell you, okay, these are the courses that we think that you might want to take that might help you. A lot of them are going to be reading and writing focused or public speaking courses, as well as they'll tell you. And these are the skills that you want to work on. Again, it's that reading, writing, public speaking. I can't stress enough that those are three skills that really are integral to a legal career. Whether you're a corporate in-house lawyer like I am, or if you're a litigator like my husband, it's, it's, those are kind of the core competencies that you'll need. And then research it. You know, Figure out if you have friends that go to law school, ask questions, what it's like. How do you prepare for something like that? Because it is... It is a totally different experience. Law school was a 180 degree shift from undergrad, just a different approach, different ways to study. They want you to think a different way. So you've got to kind of prepare yourself for that before you get in. And there are a lot of great law school prep books that you can read to kind of get a sense of where you're going. You also have to take the LSAT and I would recommend taking the LSAT seriously. Take a course to prepare for it. Make sure you're not just showing up on the day of the test and, and trying to wing it because that test makes you think a different way as well. But really, if you're interested in it and you have a passion for it, I would say absolutely go for it. But just make sure you know what you're getting into before you get into law school. Because we did have a couple of kids in my class alone that dropped out after first semester or first year just because it wasn't what they thought it would be. 
And you never want to get into a situation where you're spending a lot of money to go to law school if it's not ultimately what you want to do. So just prepare yourself. But if, if it's absolutely something that you're passionate about, go for it. I loved my experience in law school. I love my career now. So it was absolutely one of the best decisions of my life. So don't be afraid to take the jump. I, I've known a few lawyers who have told students that want to go to law school, oh, don't be a lawyer, find something else. I get it. Being a lawyer is pretty much a 24-7 job. You're at the beck and call of whatever client you're representing or if you're an in-house counsel, you know, the corporation that you work for. But if you're passionate about it, it's okay. You learn to find ways to manage the stress, to manage the expectations. And really, it is a rewarding career to have because you can make a pretty lasting impact on society or your company or, you know, if ultimately parlay your legal experience into a political career, which a lot of people do, it is a career that I think can be infinitely rewarding if you use it the right way. That's awesome. And that segues us really nicely into a question that I had about balance. And I mentioned this to you offline, and (laughs) I hope that you've had at least some time to consider the question a little bit, because you are obviously in a demanding industry. And Aaron, your husband, you mentioned also in the same industry, you have, how, how old is Sophia now? Four? Almost four. Almost four she's year old. Like she's 34. <laughs> yeah, she's got a So you have very demanding professional careers. You have an at-home personal life now that is starting to build and grow with Sophia. And obviously that's not even counting just your relationship with Aaron. How do you find the balance to it all? Like, what are, are there hacks to it? Because, and so the reason that I'm asking you this is because someone like my wife, Christine, and she would probably be the first one to admit this to you, could probably never envision having all the responsibilities that you do and being able to do them all on a day-to-day basis. She is the type of person that has, her mom was a stay-at-home mom, and she maybe will envision that for her future one day. But so I know that there are people out there, maybe more specifically women out there that maybe struggle with figuring out like how to do it all, advance your professional career and build a family as well. Can you talk to us a little bit about how your process works? Yeah. And everyone's process is different. So I'm going to caveat this by saying what works for me might not work for everyone and probably won't work for certain people, but this is just what I've done and how it kind of helps me manage along the way. You have to figure out first and foremost, what are your priorities in your life? If work is your absolute priority, then, you know, you'll devote the majority of your time to figuring out what makes your work life the most optimal. If family is a priority, then you've got to balance your work and your family. Um, And if you've got other things, for me, until I recently got hurt, playing tennis a couple times a week was a priority, as well as I'm on different local boards. I'm on a library board. I'm a member of our parent advisory council at daycare. So I think the first thing you've got to do is identify the things in your life that you absolutely want to make time for. Because the best work-life balance that you can achieve is going to be a balance of all of the things that are important to you. Because you're not going to have a true work-life balance if it's 90% work, 10% home. And then you're missing other things that you want to do. I I don't think in those situations, 
if you're not doing what you enjoy outside of work, your life at work probably isn't going to be that great. So what I've done is I've, okay, said, these are the things that I really, really want to get done this week or this month or this year. And how am I going to allot my day so that I can get everything that I uh, need to get done, done. And whether that's, you know, again, those kind of larger goals, or if it's just a to-do list for that week. And then I look at my week and I say, okay, I've got some time here, here, and here that I, I can kind of insert in and fit those activities in. And then, then I look at my work calendar and say, all right, well, I've got big filings due, or I've got all of these meetings on these days. So maybe I need to flex. Maybe I don't pick up Sophia these days. Maybe Aaron picks up Sophia these days, or maybe I can move a meeting. Maybe I can shift something so that I can get what I need to get in on, on this day. But I, I think it's, so first it's that identification of what really needs to get done and what are your priorities and then really building that support system. And I think you need a support system both at work and at home because it's the people that you can turn to if you need help with something or if you're completely bogged down or if you need to change your schedule to get in another activity that might have come up, then it's it's positioning yourself for success in that sense because you can get done what you need to get done, but you don't feel like you're dropping the ball. And I think I'm able to manage these things because I am so petrified of dropping the ball that everything just has to work for me. And sometimes, unfortunately, I, I will drop the ball and something will fall off my plate that I completely forgot of. But it, for the most part, it's, it's making sure you have time to do everything that you love and having the people around you to facilitate that. So if I didn't have Aaron, I, I think I would be beyond myself. As, as much as we bicker and fight sometimes, it's having a partner that's committed and working towards the same goals that you are and uh, that also is willing to be flexible to shift what they're doing if you need their help and, and vice versa, as well as we've got a great family system. So my mother-in-law was just here earlier this week. She came in from Cleveland and she's an additional support system that we rely on when there's no daycare coverage. So as when Sophia was younger, it was somewhat easier to work from home when she was here just because she didn't require as much attention and, and constant focus. But now she drops in on my conference calls if I'm at home <laughs> and says hi to the group. So we're, we're happy to have those additional resources. And at work, I have, you know, the same kind of flexible coworkers around me that we all pivot and help each other. So if I didn't have the organization and that support system, I don't think I'd be able to get everything in in a day. And I think as a working mom, we all try to do too much to begin with. We take on too much. We think we need to be everything at home and everything for our family. And I think it's the realization that it is okay to ask for help and it is okay to pivot and kind of change your course if you need to to help balance those priorities. That was a realization that took me a while to get to. At first, after I had Sophia, it was very stressful. I had my life balanced before I had a baby, and then the baby came and everything changed. It took me a little bit of uh, a little bit of time, really, to get adjusted to it, but once you find a good schedule and it works for you and it works for your partner, it, it makes it easier to balance some of those things. One of the interesting aspects that you just brought up was your support system, specifically when you're talking about 
family members or people that you grew up and were really close to. Sometimes those are friends and you may call them uncles or aunts and they're not blood relatives per se, but this generation, our generation, I feel like more than maybe any generation before us, especially here in America is moving all around the place a a little bit more than in the past where you might've just had generations grow up in one area, one city, one town and Obviously, if you're in the same physical location, it's much easier to help other people and to be there and and just, you know, the craziness of life, it it just makes it all easier if you're in one physical location. But for you, you are in Syracuse and a lot of your family, Aaron's family, your family, they're in a totally different location and it requires flights, it requires long drives in the car to actually see each other. So I think that is a really interesting aspect in your life and it's unique in some ways, but it's also becoming, I think a little bit more the norm. And it's something that my wife and I are going to be going through at some point in our lives too. And I'm wondering how you make that work. If you could talk to us a little bit more about that, because if there are people out there who are thinking about moving away from home, but they're like, man, what if I start a family one day? Like you don't necessarily need to, move back home or your family doesn't need to move out to you. But I think there's enough things in this world now with technology and in the way that you can get around that makes it a little bit easier, but I'd, I'd have to imagine it still can be difficult at times to balance that all. Yeah, it, it's, it can absolutely be difficult, but it shouldn't be an obstacle that precludes you from doing those things. If you really want to make it work, you make it work. Again, it's kind of figuring out what your priorities in your life and how you get it done. And we're very fortunate that we have family that can travel to see us. So for Aaron's family, it's Cleveland. It's depending on how fast you go on 90, it's about a five hour drive. (laughs) So and his parents are retired. So if we need them, that's a great resource. But we've also built and I think it goes along to your point of everyone's moving across the country. So the concept of the familial unit has expanded a little bit solely by virtue of the fact that my family is entirely in Wisconsin. Aaron's family is in San Francisco, Cleveland, and Maryland. And we've had to adapt our definition of family. We've got some great friends here in Syracuse that are incredible resources to us, not just for childcare, but there are social network, there are support network. And I think Having that is is a really great thing, and I would encourage everyone to find friends and relationships like that wherever they are because I think it, that makes your life and balancing your life more manageable, and it's also a great outlet, and it, it provides a different perspective because a lot of us come from families who think very similarly to the way that we do, and so it, it kind of forces you to branch out a little bit and get exposure to different things, but I will say we make time to make sure that we go visit our families and with busy and demanding jobs that may seem daunting, but there have been times when, you know what, we'll fly into Wisconsin a day early just because that works better for us. And I may work remotely for part of the day or I'll take calls for part of the day and the same will go for Aaron. But at the end of the day, we're still in a location that allows us to see our family and, and we're going to do something with them, whether it's just to dinner for that day and then go out for the weekend and do activities. We're not saying, hi, I absolutely can't visit my family just because I have work because I don't think 
with the way that the modern workplace is constructed and our ability to work remotely as much as we do now, I don't think that's an excuse anymore. Mm -hmm. You can't, unless you've got a court conference or a physical thing that you need to be there for, you can go across the country and make sure that you're spending time with your family and not losing out on your work priorities as well. So I think it's a combination of making sure that we put the effort forward to see our families, but the flexibility that we have with our jobs that has allowed us to kind of to balance where we are in relation to where our family is and make it a little more manageable. And I will say it, it, it again helps that you have family members that can travel to you as well, mm-hmm. because sometimes it can be exhausting if you are the only party that's traveling to see someone else, especially when you've got a toddler. Um, I will say the O'Hare airport can be a nightmare with an infant. So I would advise against that if at all possible. (laughs) Great advice. And I think we've gotten through so many different topics today in the course of our conversation. And again, that just goes back to your ability to be direct and to be concise. And there's been so much good information. So before we wrap up, I just want to ask if there's someone who listened to this conversation and wants to get in touch and learn maybe a little bit more from you or ask you questions. Is there a way, I know obviously very demanding, busy schedule as it is, but if it's just a quick question that maybe they can pick your brain about, is there a way that they can get in touch with you? Yeah. So I am on LinkedIn. It's Kara Krieger, um, K-A-R-A-K-R-U-E-G-E-R. If they want to shoot me a message that way, I'm also on Facebook. You have my contact information. So if any of your listeners want to get it from you, I'm absolutely okay with you disclosing that to them. I'm absolutely open to any questions. I love going back and giving back to our law school and speaking to students about what my life has been like since I transitioned from law school, as well as just providing general guidance on what it's like to be a lawyer, what it's like to be a working mom, how you have those work-life balance conundrums that you eventually work through and solve. So I'm, I'm happy to take any questions and feedback. And I try to get back to people as instantly as I can. <laughs> but that said that there are certain times when I've got a lot going on, but I will absolutely respond because I think that it's important to share experiences no matter what state you are in your career and whether you're still in school and playing sports or you've been an attorney for 40 odd years, there's still something you can learn from somebody else's perspective. So that's why I'm always willing to share it if someone wants some advice. Awesome. Great to hear. And Kara, before I let you go, the show is called Dynamic Leaders. And obviously you are on the show as you've displayed a lot of the great leadership qualities that you have as an individual and you're a dynamic leader yourself. But I want to give you an opportunity if there's one or two people that have influenced you and stand out as leaders in your own life that you want to give a shout out to today. Yeah. So I think one of my primary influences was probably my mom. She was a teacher, like I mentioned, growing up, as well as she was my coach in high school for basketball as well as she was the assistant coach for softball. And I think it was the demonstration of leadership from someone in my family. So seeing her in that role from, oh my gosh, I think she started coaching when I was four or five. And seeing someone growing up that could come home every day, I could see those skills in action on the court, but then come home and she still 
you know, practiced a lot of those same philosophies at home, I think that that was really great to see because I think oftentimes you don't get to see behind the scenes of your favorite leaders. So to be able to see that and how it affected her while she was at home and how she translated the skills that she had on the court was, was really important to me. And then another dynamic leader that I really look up to is our current U.S. General Counsel, Carrie Sweetsvalia. She was actually the person that hired me into National Grid and trained me from the time I just got out of law school up until now. And I just... I value her perspective and I've learned a lot of really great leadership qualities, that compassion, that approachability, that openness from her, as well as substantive, you know, just general legal advice on how to navigate some of these things has, has been super helpful. And she is the epitome of, of work-life balance, which someone who is the head of legal for our entire U.S. operations, you would think that they wouldn't have a great work-life balance, but she doesn't let the ball drop. She's a great leader, but she's also a great mom. So she's definitely someone that as I progress in my legal career and take on more accountability and more leadership roles that I definitely want to kind of mirror what I've seen in her. Awesome. Two great shout outs and an awesome way to end this conversation. Kara, it's been so great having you on. And I know, like I said earlier, there's so much to take away and I can't thank you enough for giving us your expertise and your guidance through all that we talked about. But thank you again so much for taking the time to be on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. And that wraps up my conversation with Kara. Thank you again to her for hopping on the podcast. It was great to learn from her. She gave us so many great nuggets of information and so many practical ways that we can just start being better at whatever it is that we're trying to do in our lives. So that was an awesome conversation. I'm sure you took a lot away from it. I know I did myself. Quick shout out to my sponsor, Sweat with Stod. Go to www.sweatwithstods today to figure out what she can do for your fitness future tomorrow. Thank you as always to my listeners. You guys coming back week after week. I certainly do appreciate it. And if you have an opportunity and want to give us a five-star rating and review on your favorite listening device, that would be great. It helps other dynamic leaders find us and helps us find other dynamic leaders. We are back on Thursday with a special episode of Behind the Seas with my wife, Christine Cernelia. Please stay tuned for that. Mm -hmm.